open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Mugwon Tower, Mugwon Tower, this is Albatross 1-3, requesting permission to land. Over. I don't need a computer to tell me how to land a damn airplane. Six. Heads up display, check. Five. Lasers, check. Four. Particle beam, check. Three. Proton bolts, check. Two. Chair control, check. One. Let's do it. Broadcasting from a secret underground location somewhere in Moss Eisley, this is the Docking Bay 77 Podcast. Make yourself comfortable. The show is about to start. Hello and welcome to the month of November. This is the Docking Bay 77 Podcast and I am your host, Dayton Johnson. Please welcome... We have two people that have forgotten more about classic movies than I will ever know. Please welcome Amber Lewis and Robert Burnett. How are you guys doing? Hey, buddy. Doing good. I'm fantastic. Hope you guys are too. I am. Thank you. So before we get into the topic, I have some feedback from a previous episode. Uh, We got a lot of feedback from our top seven scary movies. Friend of the show and sometime guest, John Wright, his list counting from seven down to one. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder remake, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Event Horizon, Jaws, The Exorcist, Halloween, and Alien. His honorable mentions include An American Werewolf in London, The Lost Boys, and the remake of It. Good list there. Our friend, another John from the 30-something movie podcast, uh, his favorite scary movies include Evil Dead 2, American Werewolf in London, Bram Stoker's Dracula, yet again. Not a Living Dead, The Thing, Alien, again, and Fallen. Now, he has a list of genuinely scary movies, which include The Babadook, Event Horizon, Paranormal Activity, Hush, This House Possessed, Exorcist, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. A lot of scary movies on that one. Other friend of the show and uh, has been a guest, Def Dave, David Wright. His list includes Sleepy Hollow, Scream, The Amityville Horror, The Shining, The Ring, I See You, and Cabin in the Woods, which is a fabulous movie. His honorable mentions include The Exorcist, Saw, Sweeney Todd, Halloween, and Get Out. Wonderful list there. Thank you so much for reaching out to us on social media. And as well, anybody listening can do the same thing. Um, you can reach out to us on Twitter at DockingBase77Pod, on Facebook at DockingBase77Podcast, and send us an email at DockingBase77Podcast at gmail.com. And let us know what you think about the topic and any topics we've passed, past, present, and future. So there you go. So now, with that out of the way, I'm going to do, introduce the topic. And this topic, when I came up with it, I had these two specifically in mind. We are going to discuss and list our top seven golden age of cinema films. So roughly, that means in the late 20s, early 30s, all the way up till 1960s, where we put the cutoff. Um, so with that in mind... Amber, how did you come up with your list? Um, well, I specifically went from the 30s and the cutoff for me was 1960, like nothing in 1960 or after. Okay. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I had like a film from each decade because you could pilot with, you know, a few from like the 40s and 50s, you know, right. just because there's more to choose from. And then I wanted to make sure that I had like diverse genres because my first list was 
almost exclusively Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and that's not the kind of list we're doing. Um, and then um, I wanted to make sure also that it was films that weren't typically on lists. So there's no Casablanca, there's no Citizen Kane, like that is not allowed. It has to be kind of outside of those, you know, top titles. Um, and then like films that are kind of of their time, but then also are kind of like, they stand up over time and like hold up, even though people will try to remake them. Like the original is always better. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So that was kind of, I was all over the place. I must, I have like <laughs> balls of paper everywhere from lists <laughs> that I made and discarded. This was torturous. All right. Well, I'm glad you had fun with it at least. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> all right, Robert, how'd you come up with your list? Very similar to Amber's. Um, it was rough. I, I, I'm old enough. I, I grew up back when there were still lots of like art houses and, and stuff. So I saw so many movies in high school and college from the 30s and 40s and 50s in double features in, at the movie theater. And then I came of age right when videotapes were, were hitting. I actually managed a video department of a record store for a while, a licorice pizza, which is now a movie. But uh, And so just, I, old movies have just been in my, my DNA for always. They've always just been what I went to see. They were what I was renting to people, you know, and I still love them, but it was so hard. And so um, like Amber, first thing I did was tossed out all, all of the obvious super great Casablancas and things because I thought people know those. Um, but then it was like The Matrix was going to be seven movies. So one from each of the major studios, that works. It was like, no, well, that's, that's, or, or maybe by star, but I had more than seven stars. It was like maybe <laughs> by decade, one from every decade. I just gave up. So my, my, my filter ended up being kind of like Amber's, but, but a little bit, little bit different, which is why I'm not going to have runner-ups exactly, is my, my, my overarching theme is if you like blank, then you also need to see this. So I'm going to name okay. drop a lot of the really well-known movies and try and highlight some of those that should be just as well-known and for some reason aren't. Um, I love that because it's, I was thinking how sad it is. I worked at a video store too. I worked at a yeah. blockbuster <laughs> and how sad it is that we don't have that because it was like mm. going to the library where you had people there that knew what they were talking about. Yeah. And if you were just at a loss for what to watch, they could say, well, try this. And if you like this, then you'll like that, you know, and we don't have that anymore. So I love that you made your list like that. Yes. And, and that... My, my very last little, little filter, um, Rosalind Russell, who does not <gasps> appear on I know, who does not appear on any of my films, unfortunately, although I love Oh, I've got her covered. It's fine. I, okay. <laughs> I, I, could, I could have done a top seven Roz Russell list, or or and we need to re revisit, date and write this down, revisit the top seven Hitchcocks. Right, I, I know. At yeah. any rate, Rosalind Russell once said, um, it doesn't matter what the movie is, what genre, what type of movie, if it's good or bad, you've got to give them moments. And so all of my movies ha have those moments that you can just mention, you can remember, you can see that two second clip in a montage and it comes back to you. Okay. So that, that was kind of my, my umbrella too, which is that you got to give them moments. Right. Well, um, I have a lot of, I have um, obvious ones covered, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm dying to know if we're going to have any overlaps. I know. I, I would hope not considering how many movies we can pull from. Um Mine were ones that uh, changed my mind about classic films, um, blew my socks off, so to speak. Uh, I 
couldn't believe it was made in 19 whatever. So these are all movies that I saw. Some I actually saw in film class in high school. Some I chose to watch on my own uh, out of curiosity. But every single one of these on the list um, just really impressed me uh, for a multitude of reasons. So um, like I said, some of them are pretty obvious. And then uh, there might be a couple surprises in here for you guys. So So let's do this thing. Uh, Here's the order. We're going to go with Amber first, then me, and then Robert. And before we do our number ones, we will do some honorable mentions. I have a few uh, I'd like to name drop. And since they are kind of obvious, I'm pretty sure you guys won't hit them. So there we go. All right. So (laughs) Amber, what is your, uh, we'll say number seven, even though I know neither one of them have yours in order. So (laughs) (laughs) number seven, Amber. Yeah. These, these are not ranked. These are, it's strictly chronological. Um, So number seven um, is it happened one night. Okay. Uh, Frank Capra in 1934, starring uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Um, Every romantic comedy and Hallmark movie owes their existence to this movie. Um, And it's kind of an obvious choice. It's it's on a lot of lists, but it's just that good. Like I, you know, looking back at those, you know, first transitions from talkies, or from silent to talkies kind of movies, like this is the one. Um, it was made in four weeks. Everybody involved with it hated it, <laughs> but it fizzles like champagne and it won the top five major Oscars. It was the first film to do that. Nice. Um, and it's just this fizzy little comedy about um, Claudette Colbert is this spoiled heiress who her father's like really domineering and she wants to marry this guy and he doesn't want her to. So she runs off and she's going to take the bus from Miami to New York. So she can go marry this guy. And she ends up on the bus on the bus with Clark Gable, who is this, you know, world weary kind of cynical reporter who has no patience with her. She's so spoiled. Like she has no idea the way the world works. Like her father's a bazillionaire. She's never had to do a thing. You know, and like they get off the bus for a break and she's like, oh, they'll wait for me. I'll be back, you know, (laughs) and he's like, "Okay, yeah, they'll wait for you, you know. And so they end up, you know, through one problem and another road tripping from Miami to New York. And of course, they fall in love. And of course, there's some slapstick in there. And, you know, but Clark Gable, he never really did anything for me, you know, watching like gone with the wind or Magambo or whatever. Like it was, he was just whatever, you know, but this movie, he is so charismatic. He's like the proto George Clooney. I mean, he is just to die for. And Claudette Colbert has this way of acting with her face that comes from the silent film era where she doesn't need to say a word. It's all just in her facial expression. And um, so it's just an absolutely delightful little little movie. All right. It's a very do good choice. Know, Amber, do you know about Clark Gable and the undershirt? Yes. he He's like, you can go on your side of the room and sleep there or not, but I'm taking off my clothes. He's telling her, like, this is how I'm going to undress. And he take, he's like, first I start with the tie and then the shirt. And... <laughs> You know, then you might think I'd go for the pants next, but no, I'm going to go for the shoes. Well, he's got this whole monologue going as he's taking off these articles of clothing and 
he just kept getting stuck on the undershirt. It re- plus his pants are like pulled up to like his sternum, <laughs> you know, like the style back then. So that's not helping, but he couldn't, when he they were making the movie, couldn't get his undershirt off. So <laughs> they just did it without an undershirt. And he just takes off, you know, his top shirt and he's bare chested. And then it became like the coolest thing to not wear an undershirt. And like the undershirt <laughs> industry died because <laughs> Clark Cable was not wearing an undershirt in this movie. Wow. The the power of stars even back then, right? Right. I mean, he is so <laughs> dead sexy in this movie. I mean, I could see why women would be telling their husbands, like, really, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very nice. Um, now, my number seven uh, from now, I'm going to say I'm pretty much all my movies are from the 1950s, and that was not intentional. I swear to God, it was not intentional. Um, it's easy to do. It, it is. It is. So uh, so my number seven comes from 1956. It's science fiction. It is The Forbidden Planet, starring Leslie Nielsen, Walter Pigeon, and Robbie the Robot. I have to mention him because he's awesome. Uh, in the 23rd century, a starship led by Commander Adams is sent to the Forbidden Planet of Altair IV to investigate what happened to the expedition sent out 20 years ago. Dr. Morbius and his daughter are all that remain of the expedition, an ancient and extinct civilization left behind wonders never seen as well as an invisible force that killed the previous expedition. Adams tries to investigate what happened while trying to survive the unseen force and the mysterious Morbius. This is one of the ones I saw in high school and growing up on Star Trek, the movie and Star Wars and alien and whatever, you know, I was like, oh, you know, old science fiction is all a joke and, you know, total B movie, whatever. And I watched this and I was like, okay, I was wrong <laughs> because uh, this had a lot of firsts in it. Um, it was the first to have a ship, quote unquote, interstellar faster than light ship built by earthlings, you know, humans or whatever. It was the first film to be completely uh, take place on a foreign, on an alien planet. Um, it was one of those, it, it was the first one to have a realistic looking robot that didn't just look like a bunch of tin cans tied together. It was a game changer. It, it became the, um, what future science fiction uh, movies were based on. This was kind of the benchmark. And because of that um, and all the other stuff, it's my number seven and it will, and it sticks with me even today. So, and Leslie Nielsen being serious because when I was a kid, he was an airplane and he was the naked gun. So seeing that I'm like, he was a serious actor first. Holy crap. So um, this one opened my, uh, my eyes to a lot of different things. So that is why it's on my list. Love that movie. And I love that you chose it. And Liam and I actually had a similar reaction. We just watched it came from outer space. Right. Oh yeah. Right. And that's another one where you're watching it going like, you're thinking you're going to laugh through the whole thing and it's like really good. Yeah. 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 I made sure to hit um, every major genre with my list. So that's my, that's my one science fiction, science fiction movie. So, all right, Robert, you're number seven, please, sir. You bet. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did science fiction. I, I tried to pick one from each genre too. And I, I left science fiction out. I, I figured you, you would dial it. Also, <laughs> Got you covered. My favorite. So, so it worked out both ways. Uh, my number uh, number seven is a horror movie, um, <gasps> kind of. I know a comedy horror movie uh, called The Old Dark House, nineteen thirty two. Wow. I love the Universal horror movies: Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman. Yes. That whole. I mean, Absolutely. I wanted to pick all of those. Just when, when talking about favorites, I was like, boom, 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 done. All, all the Universals. But I went with this one. It's not as well known. Um, now, James Whale directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. 
But in between, he slipped in this weird, weird little movie. Um, it's very scary, and it's kind of campy, and it's just odd, and it still holds up remarkably well. Um, his, his main star, his top build star was Karloff. Not even Boris Karloff, just Karloff. <laughs> it was, he was only known yet from Frankenstein, and there's actually a title card at the beginning of the film that says, Yes, Karloff is the same Karloff who was the amazing Frankenstein monster <laughs> in the movie. You will not believe how scary he is this time, you know, but it is the same man. It's whatever. It's hilarious. But anyway, uh, Gloria Stewart is in it. It was the film debut of Charles Lawton. It was his first film. Um, James Whale was English, and so he brought over a lot of his pals from um, England to be in his movies. Um, and the plot um, is, is, is the very first old Dark House movie. Uh, the, the whole idea of big giant rainstorm and people <laughs> in the car have to find a place to go and look there's some lights ahead what is it it's a creepy old house let's go there uh rocky horror picture show was inspired by it as were about a bazillion other movies and tv shows yeah. so this is the first um and it has some, some amazing moments it's really really scary um and it's it's, it's off-putting a lot too which is it was a great kind of kind of creepy suspense feeling Every one of the characters is really just this strange. Karloff plays this deaf mute hulking monster. Uh, imagine um, that. And uh, but then the, the, the family who lives there, uh, there's this, this guy who's played by Ernest Thesiger, who's only been in a couple movies, but he's so weird. Everything he says is just bizarre. My favorite line in the whole movie is, "Have a potato." And you have to, you have to watch the movie and, and hear Ernest Thesiger say it. It, it it's it's amazing but anyway um he is the, the, the creepy brother there's this creepy religious ma maniac sister uh gloria stewart is part of the young couples that stranded at the house um but um you know you think you're gonna get thunder and lightning and and scary things happening and you do um but whale was just playing he was such a strange director there's one wonderful scene where the religious maniac old, older old lady is going on and on while Gloria Stewart is undressing, speaking of undressing. And they, they keep showing this lady reflected in all these strange mirrors and shapes around the room and her voice is echoing. And it's just really kind of unnerving. And then at, toward the end of the film, this mysterious ancient old man is, is um, revealed who lives at the top of the house. And James Whale thought it'd be funny to have an actress play this old man. So it's this, beard and mustache and toothless, uh, shriveled up little thing in bed. Clearly a woman, but it's supposed to be the <laughs> lord of the house. Whale was just perverse and strange, but this, so the movie is great for comedy. It's great for scares and uh, just very, very atmospheric. So if you, if you like any of the universal horrors or, or any of the billions of afterward, old dark house Scooby-Doo's and Rocky Horrors and all of those. <laughs> this is where they all came from, and it's, it's wonderful to watch. And it's a good time of year to watch it right now. Oh, absolutely. I've all never right. heard of this one. Yeah, it was new on me too, so awesome. I wrote it down. <laughs> okay, Amber, uh, your number six, please. Number six from 1939 is The Women. Okay, right. I know that one. Oh, I almost picked that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> I oh. wondered. Uh, it's directed by George Cukor. It stars um, literally almost every woman in Hollywood. There are 130 <laughs> parts in the movie and they are only played by women. There are no men in the movie at all. There's even a couple of dogs and the dogs are female dogs. No men at all. Um, although we do nothing but talk about them. 
Um, <laughs> but it stars Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford and Rosalind Russell. And it's my favorite of Rosalind Russell's roles. That's absolutely, she just is a delight. Um, Lucille Watson's in it. She steals every scene that she's in. <laughs> um, she has my, one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. And it's uh, based on a stage play by Claire Boothloose. And um, it's just about this happily married woman, like mega rich, has a daughter, everything's great. And these bitchy friends of hers find out that her husband is cheating on her and sort of bully her into divorcing him. (laughs) And it's about, you know, just women being catty and but some of them are good friends and some of them support her. And, you know, should she stay with him after he's cheated on her? Should she divorce him? You know, and it's absolutely completely hysterical. <laughs> it's absolutely just catty bitchy fun. Got it. I got to chime in real fast. Love this movie. Almost made my list. Um, they did a Broadway revival a couple of years ago with an all-star cat that Cynthia Nixon and Jennifer Coolidge and like, all the women on Broadway were all in it. I just remember and, they did one. Is this the same one with the girl from 30 Rock? Yeah. Kristen yeah, Johnson. She was, yeah. She was in okay. it. Yeah, everybody was. Is in that it. the same one? And, uh, yeah. Okay. And it started, it was great because they started it before. The, and this will be, this will be brief. I know we're, we're doing movies, but this is, I thought, thought it was hilarious. They started it all. I think the cast on stage was 38 women. They played different parts. Some of them, but 30, they all walked out in their lingerie. <laughs> so some were in girdles, some in bras, some in slips, whatever. Walked out, took a bow, left. Then the curtain went up and the show actually started. But in the play, a man appears right at the end. And the woman who thinks her husband is cheating and all that. He walks in at the end of the play and basically has a line more or less like, well, I'm home, honey. What did I miss? You know, <laughs> kind of this like. Oh and on, on Broadway, they had like a different star do it every night. So Tom Hanks <gasps> did it one night. Oh, my God. That's so awesome. It was like, like kind of Hollywood star roulette of who was going to walk through the door at the end and say their one line as the curtain came down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's kind of amazing. That's kind of amazing. All right. All right. Thank you, Amber. Um, my number six, uh, new, new genre. So this is my Western genre that I'm hitting this time. Uh, we are traveling to 1952. And uh, my second favorite Western of all time is High Noon, starring Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, Henry Morgan, and Lon Chaney. Uh, in 1896, excuse me, 1898, Marshall Kane finds out that the man he sent to prison, Frank Miller, is on his way to town to seek revenge and will arrive at, on the noon train. Cain's uh, new bride tries to convince him to run, but his sense of duty keeps him in town. He seeks help from the town, but receives none. The movie tells a story in real time and gives us action, tells a great story and a worthy old West hero. Uh, I watched this because it made the AFI's 100 list and it quickly became a favorite because it's in a time where, you know, growing up, it was all about John Wayne and it was all about Clint Eastwood in these, uh, in these Westerns. It was nice seeing uh, a hero who was relatable, who you know, did the right thing. I mean, as stupid as it might've been at the, you know, looking at his, uh, was up against him. I really enjoyed it. It was clever. It was fun. It was entertaining. And, uh, the fact that it was, it won four Oscars and four golden globes. And, and I've seen it 
uh, reacted or reenacted on the Simpsons as well, which is, that was a great episode. Um, it's just, it's so cool. And it was impressive. I w- walked away going, why did it take so long for me to watch this movie? So that is why, uh, like I said, it's second only to my favorite Western of all time, Silverado. All right, Robert, your number six, please. All righty. Um, following Amber, uh, it sounds like it's going to be happening a lot tonight. Um, <laughs> I, I've also got kind of a screwball comedy genre film, and I, it is my, if you liked His Girl Friday or The Women or Bring okay. Up Baby, any of those fast-talking, sassy movies from the late 1930s, or It Happened One Night, um, I, I'm going to recommend The Awful Truth from 1937. Uh, Leo McCary was the director. It was from Columbia Studios. Um Leo McCary, and I just want to shout out all the studio system because I love it so much, um, was so versatile as a director. So many of them are. So he directed this film, but he also did Going My Way, the Bing Crosby picture that he won Best Director for, An Affair to Remember, the big tearjerker from the 50s. He did Duck Soup, which is one of the first Marx Brothers movies. Oh, yeah, nice. The old studio system was great because these guys, you could hand them anything and they could just make it fabulous. And I, I think that's so interesting where now we have these directors who are amazing at certain things but you know you think of tim burton you know what you're going to see you think of steven spielberg you kind of know what you're going to see either either the fun the fun one or the serious one you know but but uh, these these old old school directors my gosh you could just give them any movie and they could just make it brilliant anyway uh carrie grant is the, is the star irene dunn is in it as well and uh, ralph bellamy uh was kind of an early-ish picture for all of them this is the movie that really made Cary Grant Cary Grant. He was super handsome. They He was at Paramount for about four or five years. Nobody quite knew what to do with him. They like, propped him up next to Mae West in one movie, then he was a cop in a couple movies. And he didn't really develop that persona that, that we think of now where he's sort of charming and self-effacing and very funny, um, a lot of physical humor. He really developed that in this movie, uh, partly because the movie did not have a script when they were starting. Um, they actually kind of ad-libbed and improvised the script as they went along. It was something McCary liked to do in his films, as he'd worked with the Marx Brothers and some of them previously. Um, Grant didn't like it originally. He came from the stage. Irene Dunn was not happy with it, but he, they they stuck with it. And it, it's a huge, successful movie. It, won, uh, it was nominated for six Academy Awards that year, Best Picture, Best Actress, Supporting Actress. It won for Best Director. So McCary won for directing this film. It's on the National Film Registry. It, it is just so funny. And, and it, it goes to kind of the same idea of the, the women. I think that must have been a thing in the late 30s where Dunn and Grant are happily a married couple. And he's been out of town for a little bit. And she's been taking voice lessons. And he, when he comes home from his business trip, all their friends make all these jokes about her having this fling with the music teacher while Grant was out of town. <laughs> Why anybody would have a fling with anyone when they have Cary Grant, I don't know. But right. anyway, um, right. Um, or, or, or early Clark. Also early Clark is in there too. But uh, <laughs> early, early Clark. Um, but anyway, um, no. And then the couple get more and more suspicious of each other. It goes from being a joke to being serious. So then they're going to get divorced. And there's this huge divorce subplot. This judge is hilarious in this film. He's so funny. Um, Grant keeps showing up every day because he keeps saying, well, this is the day the judge said I could see our dog. Anyway, uh, it, it's a very, very funny movie. Lots of great one-liners. Um, I won't try and do them justice because I don't have that that zippy out of the side of the mouth delivery like um, <laughs> those stars all did back then. But but it is very, very funny and uh, still kind of timely even too in terms of 
how the couple's marriage works uh, for them versus their friends. So definitely can recommend that one. Nice. One I've heard of, but have not seen. All right, Amber, uh, you're number five. Uh, so now we're in the 1940s. My absolute number one favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie of all time, Notorious. Nice. Um, from 1946, I have seen this movie probably 5,000 times. Like, it's just <laughs> like I will throw it on for no reason at all. Um, it stars uh, Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains. Ostensibly, it's about a socialite played by Ingrid Bergman, whose father was a Nazi. Cary Grant is the CIA agent that recruits her to go to South America and infiltrate her Nazi father's friends and find out because they've got to be up to no good. So they want her to go in and infiltrate this group and find out what they're up to. And this was the first time I had ever heard the term MacGuffin that Hitchcock uses, which is something in the movie that is incredibly important to everyone in the movie and that the audience cares absolutely nothing about. (laughs) And that is basically this whole movie. Like it's what are these Nazis doing and are they going to get the magic dirt and all this stuff? And you don't care because it's just about Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman being sexy. And it is like the sexiest movie you've ever seen in your life. Like (laughs) my God, like it's one of the longest kissing scenes that they had to cleverly film because the censors said you could only kiss for so many seconds. So they kiss for a little bit and then they like walk across the room and then they kiss some more. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Claude Rains is just doing what he does, being like a smarmy little villain. And I mean, I adore him. I could not love Cary Grant anymore. Ingrid Bergman is just luminescent and it's just a great, you know, spy post-war little thriller. So yeah, yes, but Notorious is is for me his best thing he ever did. All right. I will argue with that later. Okay. Oh yeah, we can get into it. <laughs> okay, so uh moving on to another genre for me. Um my war picture, it is from 1957. It is The Bridge on the River Kwai, starring oh, Alec oh Guinness, William Holden, Jack Hawkins. In 1943, in a prisoner of war camp in Thailand, a group of POWs are forced to build a bridge that would connect a train from Bangkok to Rangoon. One of the POWs escapes and is eventually recruited by a special forces unit to help destroy the bridge, along with a train of important dignitaries and soldiers. This movie is epic in both scope and storytelling. Um, It delivers a gritty and unflattering look at war and being a POW, even though it was even worse for the actual POWs it's it's based on um and has a fabulous ending to this movie just, just. oh my god yeah so well cuz when i saw this i knew who Alec Innes was because of star wars mm-hmm. you know it was like oh he's over one kenobi whatever so um i remember hearing about it i go back and watch it and like i said growing up i kept seeing stuff like patton and you know the you know force him from navarone where you have these big strong you know really cool guys that are almost enjoying fighting a war and then you get this version of and it. only ever win right exactly and this is not that and that's one of the reasons why i love it so much because it was not flashy it was not you know propaganda in a way it was telling a serious and sad story in a way um and that 
just that ending just sticks there. Uh, winner of seven, seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay. Now, the funny part about that, you guys probably already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Pierre Bowl, who wrote the book it was based on, was given the Oscar, even though he didn't speak English or write the screenplay. The two writers, uh, Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, were hiding in the UK because they had been blacklisted uh, for possibly being communists. Uh, the Academy would later correct that and they would posthumously receive Oscars. Uh, later video releases did add their names uh, to the credits as writers. On the AFI list, I watched it. I was like, holy crap, this is just awesome. And it keeps getting better every time I watch it. So there's my war, where's my war picture for my list. <laughs> I told you I'm hitting every genre I can. Yeah, you're doing good. <laughs> that was a good one too. Oh, good movie. All right. Roberts. I don't agree with your Western one, but I I agree with you. That's fine. Sure. You have your own list. That's fine. This is fantastic because see, see Dayton, I, I feel like I'm getting to know you even better. I did not pick any science fiction, no war movies, no Westerns. Because I figured, I did. I kind of just knew. But but I did pick, you, you would have guessed this about me. I did pick a musical and my next movie is my one musical on the list. Okay. Um, I was wondering which one of you was going to have one. Say, no, I have one. So I'm wondering. Okay. Well, I, I could have done, done a top seven musicals too. But there's uh, well, so I know. many. Right. Yes, there is. I, I picked uh, Damsel in Distress from 1937 uh, from RKO Studios, uh, director George Stevens. Um, it, it's the, the, the forgotten Fred and Ginger movie because she's not in it. Um, <laughs> Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers at that point were huge in, in, in the 1930s and, and we're still in the 30s. My list stays in the 30s for a while. <laughs> um, the, uh, but they had done six movies in three and a half years together. Um, and the last two were starting to slip a little bit. How you can have Irving Berlin and, you know, Rogers and Hart and whatnot write songs for you and have these dance numbers and people not love them. I don't know, but tastes were changing. They were tired of the formula. So they gave Ginger a dramatic movie because she wanted one. Uh, Fred did not want to do drama. He wanted to stay in musical. So he did this one. And so if you like any of the, the Fred and Ginger movies, you will love this. George Stevens, the director, did direct Swing Time, which is one of my favorites of the actual Fred and Gingers. But again, that versatile studio system thing. He did uh, Gunga Din with, with Cary Grant uh, in the 1930s. He later did A Place in the Sun. He did Shane, if we're talking Westerns. Nice. Uh, George Stevens directed Giant. He got an Academy Award for that one. And he directed The Diary of Anne Frank. And I just think anybody who can direct Fred Astaire in a musical and The Diary of Anne Frank and Shane and just be like, well, what, what, what's the paycheck? Like, what do you got for me next? <laughs> classic, classic, classic. I just think it's, it's an amazing system. Um, so anyway, Fred Astaire is in it. Uh, Joan Fontaine is in it. Uh, Olivia de Havilland's sister. Um, who later was in a bunch of movies like Rebecca and stuff. Um, this was her one and only musical. She was she was so poor, they gave her no songs. And uh, the, the one dance number she has with Fred, they hit her behind trees. They're walking, they're walking through the woods and he's singing and dancing and jumping over brooks and twirling. And every time she's supposed to be dancing, the camera moves and it has a tree blocking out where she would, would be moving. So she kind of strolls while Fred sings. But it's okay because Fred is singing uh, George Gershwin, George and Ira Gershwin songs. It was the last score that the Gershwins wrote before George Gershwin passed away. Um, a Foggy Day in London Town is from that movie. Nice Work If You Can Get It is from that movie and a bunch of other ones. Um, it, it got two Academy Award nominations for Best Art Direction and also for Best Dance Direction, which I thought was kind of cool. For three years, because there were so many musicals in the 30s, 
they actually gave a special award for uh, basically the dance choreography of a musical number. It is uh, just so much fun. There's so many great moments in this movie. Burns and Allen uh, are fantastic. Now, old George Burns kind of creeped me out. She was like <laughs> a talking to him and he was not funny. And I, I watched the toupee more than I watched him. It was just, it creeped me out. But, but, but Burns and Allen in their prime are just lethal. And oh my gosh, they are so funny in this movie. Everything Gracie Allen says made me crack up. She's hilarious. And it's it just timeless. And she's just kind of weird and off and it's great. But the, the best moment in the film is it's the one that got the Academy Award. Um, there's a song called Stiff Upper Lip uh, that is them making fun of how the British people just nothing faces them. And it's always this posh, posh, stiff upper lip. And, you know, and it's set in a fun house. So we have the giant slides. We have the wacky mirrors that make you really tall and skinny or they make you really short and fat. Uh, there are the moving sidewalks and the tubes that turn that you have to run through and not fall. And the three of them just kind of dance their way through the whole thing. And it's probably, gosh, a seven or eight minute segment. And it, it you know, there's no, have nothing to do with the plot. I'm not even going to tell you what the plot is. It doesn't matter. Uh, but, but, uh, but, oh my gosh, this number is just thrilling and fun to watch. You just come away just smiling. The whole movie is just like, like drinking, you know, lovely champagne and just, just, it's just fun and, and effervescent. And uh, I wish as many people like this one as like Top Hat and like some of the other ones that everybody knows from Fred and Ginger. It's just a little thing they sing to one another. Stiff up a lip, stout fella, carry on old beam. Chin up, keep muddling through. Stiff up a lip, stout fella, dash it all I mean. Pip, pip, do old man trouble and a toodaloo too. Carry on through thick and thin. If you feel you're in the right. Gotta say, I haven't seen that one either. I, I'm getting this. The, I'm suspecting, but there's a lot on your guys' list I have not seen, which is exactly why I picked you guys to be on this one. <laughs> All right, Amber, your number four, please. Uh, number four from 1948 is just a straight up thriller. Sorry, wrong number. No, okay. Nice. Um, directed by Anatoly Litvak and starring Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. Liam came home the other night when I was watching it and it was already like to the last like half hour. And he stood there with his coat half off <laughs> and was like, he walked in and he was like, Oh, what are you watching? And like took one arm out of his sleeve and then just stood there locked in to the end of this movie. Like that's how <laughs> good it is. Um, it's the first kind of um, like psycho killer on the phone kind of movie. Um, Barbara Stanwyck is, it's really interesting because she plays an invalid, um, who's homebound, but she's an heiress. So of course, like it's the most luxurious New York apartment <laughs> and she's wearing like lace and silks and has like a diamond, the size of a poker chip on her finger. Um, and you know, but she, you know, can't get out of bed cause she's an invalid and, she is becoming like increasingly hysterical as the movie goes on because she she's trying to call her husband at work and the lines get crossed and she overhears two men plotting a murder. And she spends the rest of the movie like trying to call her husband, trying 
to get a hold of him. She hunts down like his secretary at her bingo night. I mean, this woman is like Sherlock Holmesing it from her bed. But then you also get these great flashbacks as to who these people are that she's calling and how she met her husband and how they're connected. So you see her when she was younger and healthier and she's regular Barbara Stanwyck, who's just a total man eater. But like Burt <laughs> Lancaster is the machoist of men. So to see him play this guy that just kind of gets steamrollered by her is fascinating. And um, then to see her switch from being who you expect Barbara Stanwyck to be in a movie to then being like this fragile invalid who's like completely hysterical is just fascinating and the suspense is great and the story unfolds in these flashbacks um the supporting cast is really good and like i said i mean it just sucks you right in i'm truly intrigued now so (laughs) oh and it has like the greatest last scene of a movie ever like man that's saying a lot (laughs) it pays off i'm telling you it's so good uh my turn yet another uh genre this is my film noir uh, from 1958. It is A Touch of Evil, starring Charlton Heston, Janet Lee, Jaja Gabor, Orson Welles, and Marlene Dietrich, written and directed by the wonderful Orson Welles. Ah, oh, he's so good. Um, I did cheat. He's on my list twice. Anyway, when a car <laughs> bomb explodes on the American side of a U.S.-Mexico uh, border, uh, Mexican drug enforcement uh, agent played by Heston, which cracks me up, uh, begins an investigation along with American police captain uh, Hank Quinlan, played by Orson Welles. Uh, When Vargas begins to suspect that Quinlan and his shady partner uh, are planting evidence to frame an innocent man, the investigation into their possible corruption quickly puts himself and his new bride uh, in jeopardy. The movie blew my socks off from the very first scene. That opening scene, three and a half minutes, no cuts, just... I, I saw that and I was like, uh, holy shit, you know, it was exactly what I did. Um, it, it grabbed me. It, 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 I just couldn't stop watching it. I didn't want to pause. Even if I had to pee, I just kept watching it. Um, I'm not a big Charlton Heston fan, but he was good. I, I love Orson Welles and to see something that he had, you know, written and directed again. Um, I was all in, there was a great story about the opening sequence um, because the guard that's working at the border was an actual border guard. He was not an actor. Um, so they set up everything, which has moving many moving parts, many moving actors, cars, whatever, and the tracking thing. And they would get up to that scene where the guard would ask for Heston's ID and the border guard kept flubbing the line. So then they would have to set everything back up, go back to one, so to speak, and try it again. They did it three times, and every time this guy messed up his line. So finally, Orson Welles says, look, just move your lips. Don't say anything. Like, okay, we'll just put it in later. So they do it. They get the shot, whatever. They go on shooting the rest of the movie. Somebody asked Welles, why didn't you just replace that guy with an actual actor? And he simply said, that would have destroyed him. I wasn't going to do that. That makes this movie even better because Orson Welles was just way too good to be remembered as a fat guy that sells wine. I hate that. <laughs> God, I hate that touch of evil is my favorite film noir. Um, 
because uh, I was corrected apparently because LA Confidential is not a film noir according to Robert. So I can say <laughs> that this one is my favorite uh, of that genre. It is fabulous. And also another side note, um, after he finished shooting the movie and put a rough cut together, Orson Welles left the country to go start another movie. Universal did not like what he had done, brought back the actors, did reshoots, blah, 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 screwed up like they always do. Um, and he, when he came back and saw what they did, he wrote a 58-page memo of everything that was wrong with what they did. Um, <laughs> later, uh, Walter Murch and others went back with what they had and tried to cut it as close as they could uh, following his memo. In 2011, a Blu-ray was released that has three versions of the movie, including the original, uh, the recut, and um, another one, which I haven't seen. So I'm super excited to watch all three of those in one sitting because that would be me. Anyway, okay. love this movie. Absolutely love it. Robert, number four. All righty. I- I'm stuck in 1937. This is my <laughs> third, third movie from that year. Um I just, you know, everybody says 1939 was the best year for films. I don't know. Maybe for me, it's 1937, maybe. <laughs> uh, my, my next film is a, an animated film. That, that's a genre, a kind of a limited genre, but but uh, it, it's Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, <laughs> and I love it. I love it for its own sake, but I also love it for kind of all the doors it opened up. Um, it did get one Academy Award nomination for best score. It did not win. They lost to something called 100 Men and a Girl. I don't know what that is. But anyway, um, but but they made up for it because the next year Snow White got an honorary Academy Award that, that, that famously Shirley Temple gave to Walt Disney. Right. It was one big Oscar with seven little Oscars. Um, <laughs> if you ever get to the Disney archives out in uh, Burbank, you can see it there. It's amazing. Snow White was one of the first films put on the National Film Registry, which I just I love that our country has that. We do that still. Yeah, there were 25 films initially and it was it was picked as one. It was groundbreaking in so many ways. Um, people thought that, um, first of all, Technicolor was not a hot property yet. This was two years before Wizard of Oz, before Gone with the Wind. The Technicolor company almost folded in 1934. They almost went out. We were going to have black and white forever. And uh, Walt Disney took a chance and said, um, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try Technicolor. Scrapped his, his short film, uh, Flowers and Trees. We did it in color. It did win an Oscar. And basically saved the technical company. Disney had it as an exclusive for a long time. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, Disney was always innovative. So they had Technicolor. Uh, and um, it was also going to be a feature-length film. That, that Walt said, no, I think we can make a story that will last an hour and a half. Um, and people will, will love it and believe in it. He, he uh, came up with the multiplane camera uh, prior to right. this film. He wanted to use it for that, which gave depth to dimension and, and dimension in films. It's the, you ever want to see a great example of that? Watch the first minute or two of Pinocchio. It's stunning. Anyway, technical advances were just amazing for that film. They called it Disney's Follies. Uh, the new, different people in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety in the New York Times were saying, oh, watching a color film for over an hour will hurt people's eyes. <laughs> it will damage their eyes. Um, other people said no one will want to watch a cartoon character. Uh, it, it's not believable. It's stupid. And they, they, they Walt pressed ahead, made the film, um, and uh, they showed it to an early preview audience. And at the end of the film, spoiler, she, she looks like she's going to die and she's in a coffin and everything. Um, for those of you who've never seen it, people were, <laughs> people were weeping. People were weeping throughout the audience, grown men, grown women, studio executives, 
sobbing because they thought Snow White was dead. Um, and and Walt was like, "See, I knew it could work." Um, <laughs> so um, and it does. And what's it's interesting is is some of the film is still dated. Adriana Castellotti's voice as Snow White is like grating and ridiculous. Oh I said, "How do you do?" How do you do what? Oh, you can talk. I'm so glad. Now, don't tell me who you are. Let me guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but we just um, rewatched it and it really holds up. Well, it does. And that's the thing. It's so filmic because all those short films everybody was doing were just gags. They were just gag gags, you know, and, and, and milking the cow's udders and jumping out of planes and whatever. And this used film language. I mean, the scene where she's running through the trees trying to escape from the hunter is still amazingly filmed. You could do it frame by frame in live action. It'd still be stunning. Uh, the witch's transformation, the witch's oh, yeah. scene. Into the Just great filmmaking that, that even all these years later, if you can get past some of that um, uh, kind of corniness of, of the 1930s sound that she has, um, great film still holds up. And I love the score. It's one of the, the ones I go to, the background score, not even the songs necessarily. Just still, just, just beautiful, fun music to listen to while you're vacuuming or doing the dishes. So yeah, uh, the 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 witch the the hag uh terrifies uh, our daughter Torrance she is absolutely terrified <laughs> of that thing the uh we only rode uh snow white scary adventures um at disney world once and that was all it took she she's like <laughs> it's like that's and, a scary sequence and oh, when yeah. we were just rewatching it the detail in the Wicked Queen's dungeon where like there's like a skeleton reaching out for a flask of water yeah. that's just out of reach. Like there's I think we counted like half a dozen skeletons in her yeah. dungeon of like people. So she just locked away and left there. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that what dungeons for. <laughs> <laughs> now, I purposely did not put any Disney in my Me list either. because, yeah. well, because I already did my top seven Disney movies. So there you go. Yes. Um, but no, it's and everything you said, Robert, about why it should be on your list. You're absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Because, you know, Walt was just ahead of the curve on a lot of things. So absolutely. All right, Amber, you ready for your number three? I am. Um, so this is my musical contribution we've gotten um up to the 50s from 1950 uh i chose summer stock all right um <laughs> i can tell by robert's face he's gonna die <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised i want to hear this okay well so i have reasons so directed by charles waters um really probably directed by gene kelly Damn! um <laughs> Starring Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. I specifically chose this one. Number one, sentimentally, I just love this movie. Um, It's not the greatest, but I just think it's adorable. Um, I love Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers when they're doing what God put them on this earth to do, which is dance. Anytime Fred Astaire has to do anything else. Like it just is grating to me. Like he should not be singing. He should not be walking and talking, um, <laughs> you know, just bring him out and have him dance and then have somebody else tell the story. Um, so I couldn't in good conscience for this list, put an Astaire Rogers movie on there because I don't think any of those movies are any good, but the <gasps> dancing is spectacular. The musical numbers are spectacular. The movies are not good. So I was definitely going to go, I definitely had to have a musical. It was definitely going to be a Gene Kelly musical. 
And I feel like this one is important too, because like you have to have Judy Garland, like you can't, I just felt like I couldn't not have her on my list. Um, And I didn't want to do, you know, meet me in St. Louis or singing in the rain. Like those are ones that everybody knows. Um, And this is just like a cute little movie. Um, Judy Garland is a farmer. If you believe that one. So she's a farmer and she's struggling with the farm. Her sister has gone off to the big city because she wants to be in show business and is hooked up with Gene Kelly. And I can't remember why, but they end up coming back to the farm and they're going to like rehearse in the barn to get this show ready to then like take it to Broadway or something. It's all convoluted. It doesn't matter. The point is, <laughs> the point is they come to the farm and they're like rehearsing and everything. And then they put on a big show at the end in the barn. Um, and it's spectacular. And along the way, Judy Garland goes from being a farmer to deciding, oh no, I have been bit by the stage bug and I too must be on stage. And so then she gives up farming and, uh, is Gene Kelly's co-star. Um, the background off, of the movie. Off, off come the overalls and on goes the sequins. And boom, yeah, <laughs> and, and there you go. Yep. Um, with natural talent, because that's there's all these farmers out there that can perform. And, you know, they just need Gene Kelly to show up and discover them. The background of the movie is really sad because Judy was really, really sick when they were making the movie. She was, it was deep in her drug addiction. Um, she was struggling with her weight because of all the drugs she was taking. Um, she was an absolute nervous breakdown every day. Um, but Gene Kelly was determined that he was going to get this movie made. He was going to make it with her because she had helped him when he was starting out. I'm going to cry. Um, (sighs) and it's so dear. Um, and he never forgot that. And so he was going to make sure that, you know, she wasn't going to get fired off this movie. They were going to make it um, and give her a chance to maybe, you know, get back in the game. And he even like faked an injury so that she could have a couple days off because she was on the verge of like nervous collapse. Um, So that part of it, you know, is very bittersweet and, you know, makes it a little sad to watch, but it's got great musical numbers. It's got one of the best dance numbers that gene kelly ever did it's him dancing with a newspaper um in the barn and it was one of, he said it was one of the most difficult things he'd ever done um and it took him two weeks to choreograph it oh, um and uh they brought judy back for reshoots and she had lost a bunch of weight and so she did her famous number get happy Um, so she looks completely different in that scene than she does in the whole rest of the movie, but it's one of her most famous numbers. Um, and it's just a delightful, fun little romp. So that's my musical. And you know, I'm going to rebut. So you're not because I gave all these beautiful sentimental reasons. I'm going back to Fred and Ginger for a minute. You are right. You are absolutely right. Fred could not act. And what I think is hilarious is Fred in almost all those movies, played a song and dance man slash actor, and he still wasn't good playing right? what he was. <laughs> but but, but, I, but what, I'm, what I'm mentioning this for is because another thing I love about the studio system in these classic movies, and we, we're hearing a lot of the same names again, like Cary Grant and so on, um, the stars were all fat. 
capitalist. But what I loved also about the studio system were the stock companies, the supporting players who were in these movies. Um, and if you were watching an MGM movie, you knew who you were going to see. And if you were watching Warner Brothers, you knew who you were going to see. These actors would show up. They'd be the bus driver, and they'd be the bartender. And they'd yeah, be, I've like, got Marjorie Maine on here like four yeah, times because yeah, she just yeah, keeps exactly. playing this cr- and, and cranky the, old lady. <laughs> yeah, and, and Fred, Fred and Ginger, um, their, their movies, they had Eric Bloor, who just, I love him dearly. He, he was British and weird, and he has a whole three-minute bit about whimsical and whimsical anyway but <laughs> and uh, and then someone says well why don't you say whimsical and he says well whimsical wouldn't be whimsical anyway um i'm not doing it justice but it slays and then, and then edward Everett horton edward Everett horton was a genius he's in all the friend gingers and every other movie rko made for 40 years and uh just his his uh, so if Fred can't act, fine. He dances, get him off screen, bring in that wonderful supporting players to do their shtick, do their little three or four minutes. They're hilarious. I, they're the undersung heroes of the whole. I mean, I could have made a whole list of just B picture, like supporting player people, because they're just the best. Marjorie Main, love her always. And she, she's, she's in the Harvey Girls. Uh, she slays in that movie too. She's hilarious. Um, that done with rebuttal. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you didn't actually, you agree with me. Well, I, I, just, I, I wanted to bring in, I wanted to mention the, 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 the stock companies, the character actors. Character actors don't get their due. And they were such a vital part of that whole 1940s yes. picture thing. I, I My next one is, I'm just going to call it a drama, but uh, it's it's a very obvious one. And it's already been called out the very beginning. Um, of course, I'm talking about the 1943 black and white spectacular movie, uh, Casablanca. Starring, of course, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains, uh, Paul Heinrich, and Peter Lorre. Um, in case you don't know what it's about, uh, <laughs> set during World <laughs> War II, it focuses on an American expatriate, of course, played by Bogart, who must choose between the love of a woman, Bergman, or helping uh, her husband, uh, Henry, a Czech resistance leader, uh, escape from the city of Casablanca to continue his fight against the Germans. Now... When I had seen this, I have not, I honestly admit, I hadn't seen a lot of black and white movies because in my brain, black and white movies were slow. They weren't very exciting. Da, 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 da. You know, blame MTV and MTV videos and, and editing. <laughs> so this one completely changed my mind about that. Uh, it never slows down. The pacing is great. And the freaking dialogue is so witty and so smart. I have a couple of my favorite quotes. So here we go. Uh, Captain Renault. What in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? Rick, my health. I came to Casablanca for the water. Waters? What waters? We're in a desert. I was misinformed. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Um, later, Rick. And remember, this gun is pointed at your heart, Captain Renault. That is my least vulnerable spot. That's great. Okay. Um, now, Rick, here's another one. Here we go. Rick, how can, you, uh, how can you close me up? On what grounds? Captain, I'm shocked. Shocked to find the gambling is going on here. <laughs> That was right. Guy walks up. Here's your winning, sir. He goes, "Oh, thank you very much." And walks away. I'm like, "See? Oh my god." Okay, so the dialogue now, is like me. Did you watch this movie because of When Harry Met Sally? No, I did not. I had never seen it, and it was one of those like everybody always talks about it, and I was just kind of like, "Oh god, whatever." And then I saw When Harry Met Sally, and I'm like, "Well, I'll give yeah. it a try." No, this was this is more of the mid '90s, and it was it was more out of curiosity. And because you hear so much about it. So I watched yes. it and yes, amazing. Um, 
and it's not only is it one of the most misquoted movies of all time because everybody gets you know uh, played again Sam wrong so they get that wrong but this is great i saw this in the documentary about the making of the movie as uh robert alluded to earlier a lot of times during this during this whole era uh they were working a lot of times without finished screenplays so they're just kind of shooting at the hip whatever so um bergman goes to the writers and directors and said which one of these two guys do i love who am i going to end up with and they respond when we know, we'll let you know. So she's playing the whole movie, not knowing how it's going to end. And I think that's fabulous because and you guys know, um, they were just churning out movies. It was like, you know, you're contracted to work for this studio. You're making this many movies over the year. So they weren't planning on making these classic films. And for this, yeah, it happened one night, they shot it in four weeks. Right. I mean, they're churning movies out and this movie, it, the dialogue alone is so much better than 50% of the movies that are written now. I mean, it was clever. It was, I, I love it. I do own a copy of it because everybody should. Uh, it's, it's just fantastic. And it convinced, it changed my opinion of black and white movies, which led me to some of my other ones, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and watching it's a wonderful life yet again, and things like that. So uh, this movie changed my feelings on uh, black and white films. So now if only I can get my daughter to watch it, cause she hates anything in black and white. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to keep trying. It might be a, a useless battle at this point, but I'm gonna keep trying. I, I need to ask you love Casablanca. Have you ever seen the chief detective? No, I have not. It's not a great movie, but it's a well <laughs> But it's a wonderful movie. It's one of my favorite. I'm in a bad mood. I pop in it. It's Neil Simon, uh, all-star cast, uh, came after Murder by Death, but it is a parody of Casablanca masked with Maltese Falcon. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, it's both movies at once, basically. And uh, Peter Falk plays the Bogart part. And the supporting <laughs> the supporting uh, characters uh, are played by Madeline Kahn, Eileen Brennan, before Clue. Uh, together. Oh, I'm in. Anne Margaret, uh, Ellen Burstyn, plays Bergman. She's hilarious. Um, James Coco's in it, all those you know, actors. Wow. Uh, James Cromwell, your, your buddy from uh, right? LA, LA Confidential. Before he was famous, he, he plays a uh, chauffeur or a cab driver or something. He's in it for a couple minutes. Hilariously funny. It's it's lame and bad, but it's also hilariously funny. Uh, and uh, I've I got it on DVD, of course, and I will like who it is. If you like Casablanca, you will, you will like it a lot. All right. All right. Sounds good uh robert uh your number three okay well same director uh I, I, this is uh also by michael curtis again one of those studio system geniuses uh he won his oscar for casablanca he also did mildred pierce which was very dramatic he did white christmas the musical with bing crosby and he did my film which i'm going to pick uh adventures of robin hood from 1938 okay all right uh, wow a warner brothers movie this this is kind of in my epic slash action picture genre uh, if, if you like, gosh, Gone with the Wind or Raiders of the Lost Ark or really kind of anything in between, you will like this movie. It's swashbuckling. The Technicolor is gorgeous. It's it's epic and sweeping, but it's also got romance. It's got everything in it. Um, Curtis was really interesting, too. I was reading more about him because I'm going, how can you direct like Robin Hood and White Christmas and throw Casablanca in, 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 the, in the middle? Like it just... It, and he was, uh, like a lot of them, he was uh, an emigre from Europe. Uh, when things were getting bad in Germany and, and in middle of Europe, he, he came here, like so many of them did. Did not even speak English very well. Uh, and so he was one of the ones who uh, helped develop the idea of storyboarding. He would plan out his movies really scrupulously in advance, 
in, in pictures to, to get what he wanted. Uh, he would have his scripts translated and then he would make these pictures and then he would kind of show everybody his pictures. He, he did speak English a little, but not great. And yet he managed to pull off all these amazing films. Um, but but uh, certainly Adventures of Robin Hood, very, very cinematic. It's sweeping, it's vast, it's stunning. Um, in the cast, we have the, the dashing Errol Flynn, who is just uh, amazing to see. Uh, Olivia de Havilland um, is in this one a year before she's Melanie. Um, they were in a bunch of movies together. They were both Warner players and they got paired up in everything. Um, but our, our favorite villain, Claude Rains, is in this one. <laughs> and his nasty, nasty Prince John. And he's slimy and slithery. And, you know, he's just wonderful in this. Uh, Basil Rathbone, uh, pretty Sherlock Holmes is in here. Is another villain. Una O'Connor, who I know, Amber, you and I talk about her all the time. She was... <gasps> I know she was. She, you can see her in color for the first time ever. Una O'Connor was this weird, shriveled-up little English lady who usually went wah, wah, when she saw monsters in Universal Horror. She movies. is, she is the best part of the movie, The Invisible Man. I watched that whole yeah. movie just for her. She, she's in this. She's Olivia De Havilland's like handmaiden, and she's like normal and in color, and it sort of ruins her. But but it's still fun to see her. Like, oh wait, 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 oh, she she's an actress. I get it. She's not some crazy English bitty who just screams all the time. When they bring it. Um, anyway, um, I love this movie. Uh, and lots of people do too. This movie is one of just a handful that has a hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, um, right. which I think is amazing for uh, an old fashioned, you know, swords and, and, and villains and bows and arrows and stuff. It got a bunch of Academy Award nominations. It won for art direction and best score and best editing um, because we love physical media so much here. Uh, Docking Bay 77, uh, the, the DVD won awards. Uh, the packaging is spectacular, but it includes everything you would want. Deleted scenes, standalone uh, soundtrack of the score that won the Oscar. It's got two hilarious Warner Brothers cartoons, including what I think is the, my favorite Warner Brothers cartoon of all time, uh, the Robin Hood Daffy. Join up with me, so joyous and free. That's the way to old Sherwood High. For I'm Robin Hood, and I'm very good at avoiding the sheriff's eye. So we'll trip along merrily, or the green sword so gracefully. To trip it, trip it, trip it, trip it, trip it up and down. To trip it, 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 trip it up and down. <laughs> Which is, I, I laugh thinking about, you did too, you, all right. Um, they're both on there. Um, it, this DVD set has got everything that you will not see if you are streaming. So buy the DVD. Um, but the film itself, I mean, it had so many great moments with everything from Welcome to Sherwood, ladies, and 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 the du duels that Rathbone has with, with Errol Flynn on the stairs. It's so great. Um, but it also was really influential, even though it's a period piece and it's very medieval kind of pageanty and all that, and old-fashioned in some ways, um, it was very influential. Uh, Flynn Rider, the character in uh, Tangle, <laughs> uh, was named after Errol Flynn. That's where he right. got his first name. Um, John Williams loves uh, Eric Korngold's music, the one who, the fellow who wrote uh, the score for this film and lots of other classic Hollywood scores. Uh, and in fact, Korngold was the first composer to use a march. So the main theme of Robin Hood is this piece of music that is a march. Before that, it was always these sort of sweeping romantic things. 
And Williams, of course, is so famous for his marches uh, in his film scores uh, that, that he is often talked about Aaron Korngold being an inspiration to him. Um, the, the Star Wars lightsaber, George Lucas said the lightsaber duel was basically a ripoff of the duel from Adventures of Robin Hood. So it's not just a film I love, it's a film that lots of people love. And if you haven't seen it, you need to see it because it, it is just an hour and a half of fun and color and swashbuckling. Yeah, see, every time I think of that, I think of the the Bugs Bunny cartoon where uh, he shows up at the very end. Uh, don't you worry, never fear. Yeah, I know. Robin Hood will soon be here. He robs from the rich and he gives to the poor. Yo-ho, we go skipping trollar through Sherwood Forest, helping the needy and the oppressed. Eh, you've been saying that through the whole picture. Well, where is he? Oh, you should not talk mean like that, because there he is. Welcome to Sherwood. That's silly. It couldn't be him. <laughs> That's well, that, a first that was good. That one I think is called Robin Hood Bugs or something. But, right. but Robin Hood Daffy came out 10 years later. Chuck Jones directed it. Right. He right. was Warner Brothers director. It, it is hilarious. <laughs> I've seen it because I've seen pretty much everything of the Looney Tunes in the world. <laughs> I'm yeah. even wearing a Looney Tunes shirt right oh, now. Oh, nice. So. Nice, nice. <laughs> Nice tie-in. There we go. All right. Very cool. Yes. Uh, I need to revisit. It's been years since I've seen that one. So I need to revisit that. So yes. I remember watching it in like fifth grade at school or something. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it was one of those I saw as a little kid because, you know, it was safe to show, uh, you know, middle schoolers and elementary school kids. So yes. All right. Uh, Amber, your number two, please. So I'm going to say something that might make you mad, but I don't actually like Westerns. That's fine. There's there's very few Westerns I like. So, yeah, there's like maybe two in the whole world that I like. Um, And the one that would have gone on this list, um, I couldn't add because it came out in 62. It's the man who shot Liberty Valance, um, which I just adore that movie. So, um, but it, didn't make the cutoff. Um, But having said that, I have a Western connected movie. (laughs) This movie is um, it's one of those movies. Like if you have movies in your family that like it's your family's movie and you all quote it to each other and everybody in the extended family has seen this movie and it's a thing. Um, This one is for the Lewis's Um, it's from 1952, the quiet man. Okay. All right. Um, That's Western adjacent. (laughs) Yeah. Directed by John Ford, um, starring John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara and Barry Fitzgerald and Victor McLaughlin. I'm going to get a little choked up. My dad loved this movie. And I think he saw like a little bit of his dad, maybe a little bit of himself. Um, And I mean, we just watched it endlessly and quote it endlessly. John Wynn plays an American, of course. Thank God he did not try to do an accent. Um, who um, he returns to the little village in Ireland where he was born. Um, and he just wants to buy the house where he grew up and live a quiet life. And he falls in love with Maureen O'Hara and wants to marry her and her brother played by Victor McLaughlin wants none of it. 
just a great cast of supporting characters. Like the dialogue is hysterical. Um, this battle that they get into um, where John Wayne is just a really good guy and he just wants to marry this girl, you know, and Victor McLaughlin is such a jerk. <laughs> I mean, he's just the worst. He is just the worst, like chauvinist pig butthead. And, um, you know, this is the twenties. So, you know, he has all the control and all the power and she can't really do anything without his permission. And so the villagers get involved and they all scheme, you know, so that they can get together. And, but even that doesn't end this rivalry. And, um, you know, then you learn more about John Wayne and who he is and why he won't stand up for her and why he won't fight for her. Um, and it's just the most like elegant, romantic, funny little movie. Like it's just, we definitely watch it every year for St. Patrick's day. And uh, more often than that, if I'm missing my grandpa, I will throw that on. I got to admit, um, I have a block on this movie just because I am not a fan of John Wayne. So I've seen very, actually very few of his movies. If I watch this is because of Maureen O'Hara, because she's uh, yes. amazing and beautiful. So that, that'll be the reason I watch this movies for her. So bold one you are. I don't get you leave to be kissing me. So you can talk. Yes, I can. I will. And I do. And it's more than talk you'll be getting if you step a step closer to me. Don't worry. You got a wallop. You'll get over it, I'm thinking. So but. well, and it really uh, he is great in it. He really is. And he's not he he's not playing his typical character. I mean, he is John Wayne, but <laughs> um, but he's different in this, in the in in a way similar that he was different in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Okay. I think that's why I like these two movies of his, because it's not his typical cowboy macho kind of persona um he's very tender in this and the supporting cast is just absolutely hysterical it's it's just the greatest little movie it's just the best yeah i'll take your word for it i'm with you both on john wayne i don't know that i've ever seen a whole john wayne movie um i just i didn't didn't like him and i as acting i don't like westerns and i did not like his politics uh either uh, and but I have a little story about John Wayne. I, I grew up in Orange County. Uh, when he had gotten old and rich and retired, he had a big house in New, New, Newport Beach on Newport Back Bay, like just like it sounds. And um, I had a friend who had a sailboat when I was in high school, and so we would go out sailing on Back Bay. And um, one time the wind was shifting, and we were being stupid, of course, because teenagers are stupid, and um, basically ran our, our boat straight into this dock uh and it got wedged in between the dock and this giant yacht that was bigger than any house i've ever had and um uh this man came out of the house screaming and swearing and dropping f-bombs and it was john wayne what um <laughs> we, we had we had run into john wayne's dock and we had hit his boat uh with our little stupid sailboat and so we got out the oars and went backwards as fast as we could. And that was, that's my John Wayne story. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. He was didn't ask for an autograph. <laughs> no, he was shriveled right? up and nasty and, 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 but he was still John Wayne. You could just, it was, yeah, it was, it was bad. <laughs> I, I will watch quiet man though. Amber, you have sold me. And I love I was your family say, story. So you, your family yes. stories always tell me too. Right. You know, 
and in that case, it is a pleasant evening, and we will have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> is that a quote? <laughs> oh, yes. We say that one all the time. When I drink whiskey, I drink whiskey. And when I drink water, I drink water. <laughs> all right. Well, I don't drink whiskey. So um, anyway, uh, my number two, uh, this is my uh, Hitchcock edition to the list. Ooh, uh, I'm excited. This was, uh, I watched this on my, one of my, uh, I had a little mini Hitchcock marathon. I watched this movie in between uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much and North by Northwest. Uh, it is not Psycho because that made my top seven scary movies. Yes. It is, uh, it stars Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, and Raymond Burr from 1954. Yes. It is Rear Window. Oh my God. I can literally quote this entire movie started <laughs> uh professional photographer lb jeffries is confined to a wheelchair in his apartment recovering from a broken leg his greenwich village apartment looks out into a courtyard allowing him to observe his neighbors during a heat wave during the night lb hears a woman scream and is convinced she is murdered he observes many things including the death of a neighbor's dog that drives him uh drives the certainty that there is a murder the police don't believe him and he continues to investigate on his own through his camera lens and also encourages his girlfriend to get involved, putting both of them in danger. I could not believe how freaking good this was. Okay. Like Thelma Ritter makes Yay! this movie. <laughs> I've got her coming up. I've got her coming up. Okay. Well, good. I got, glad we got to cover um, it. Because it's like Hitchcock made you afraid of birds. He made you afraid of the shower and here he literally makes you afraid of your neighbors. So it's like, uh, he, he was so good. And I'm watching this and it's been, and that 70 show did an episode, a whole Hitchcock episode. And this was part of it. Um, the Simpsons of course did a version of this as well. And, and for good reason, because it's amazing. You spend the whole time in his apartment and you're looking around at what he sees and what he's going on. And you start to question everything. And it's so good. It's so well-paced. And uh, Jimmy Stewart, of course, is amazing as always. And I was, when it was over, I was like, holy crap. You know, I didn't, I didn't move. I didn't pause. I just kept watching the whole movie until it was over. And of course, immediately I watched the behind the scenes stuff. And uh, so this is. Well, a, and this, did you get that you as the audience get a clue that he doesn't get? It's been yes, a long time you, since I've actually watched it again. So go ahead. Oh, well, so I've seen it 400 times. So you get a clue that he doesn't get. So the whole time you're watching, you feel like you know more than he is. Oh, okay. Okay. I got you. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. And you're going, but I saw this. <laughs> well, but me, I don't know. You know? Well, so even see, having an extra piece of information, you're still questioning everything you saw. Well, yeah, Ab absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sorry. I am a hundred percent the neighbor that like, if anything is going on, I am full on like peeking out my blinds like i am <laughs> that person 100%. Yes, i understand. My wife is the God same way. Mrs. Kravitz, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so of course i watched the behind the scenes making of after i got done watching the movie. His his apartment window is actually the ground floor, one of the ground floor. It's the main floor of the studio they were shooting in. They dug up the floor to expose the basement and that's where they put the courtyard. And that made it even more interesting i'm like because i'm looking at this set and i'm like well where is this and so yeah they ripped out the floor to create a courtyard so they wouldn't have to you know build upwards which i thought was just uh, a great idea and also with all the lights and it got so hot in there uh 
there's lots of moisture catching in the ceiling and it would quote unquote rain from time to time because of all the humidity and moisture inside the, inside the set. So yeah, Hitchcock, once again, proving that there's, uh, he can make anything scary and, you know, and, and frightening and thriller ish. So including your yes. neighbors. So there you go. <laughs> and I adore to catch a thief, but Grace Kelly in this movie is just, She's like superhuman. She's just not even like we're the not even the same species. Like right, <laughs> it's she's just unbelievable. She is absolutely okay, Robert. Uh, you're number two. Well, weirdly, this was almost my Hitchcock slot. Also, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, and this is probably the best known of my films, but I, I still love it so much. I had to put it in here. I, I jumped to the 1940s. I made made the <laughs> you made it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm catching up. And uh, uh, my my film is a gaslight from 1940. Oh, okay. I just watched it the other day. I know uh, MGM. I couldn't leave out MGM. They're probably my favorite studio uh, of that of the classic era, along with RKO. Um, George Cooker was the director um, who was just he could direct anything too, like a lot of them. He did Dinner at Eight. He did Little Women. He did The Philadelphia Story. He did Adam's Rib. He was really known for working with with women actresses, uh, or actresses, I guess I can say, women actors, <laughs> and he. Um, he was actually involved with Gone with the Wind was a while to work with Vivian Lee, and he got canned from that one. Um, but that's a whole different story. But Gaslight is amazing. Um, it, it's a great story. It has Ingrid Bergman, uh, Charles Boyer, who was playing against type, which I, I, I you know this from- is the first movie I saw him in, and I can't see him any other way. Like to me, right. he's just well, this see- slimy. Horrible. <laughs> this movie at the time kind of had the same effect that Psycho did with, with Janet Lee disappearing early on, where for 10 years, Charles Boyer had played these glamorous, romantic leading men who all the women swooned for, and was just all at the end of the movie was all, you always got to marry Charles Boyer, and it was wonderful. And this one, he played against type, audiences flipped their wig. It helped, it helped make the movie so successful that people could not believe that he could be anything other than just romantic and dashing and wonderful so it really added it, it, it it's lost now on us because we don't know him or maybe it's the first thing we've seen him in but it was part of the fun of the movie and then um angela lansbury who we just lost it was her very yes. first movie and she managed to pull off a best supporting actress nomination uh for her first film at 17 years old wow um, and she yeah and she is when did she got one for her next movie like her first two movies and she did national velvet with elizabeth taylor and um also got an academy award nomination but anyway um Bergman is the star of this film. And um, although when I think of the golden era, it's easy to talk about directors. And I love talking about character actors. Uh, most people, when they think of the, the golden era of Hollywood, they think of movie stars. And Ingrid Bergman, my God. I mean, uh, she's been on two other films we've already right. mentioned tonight. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is just, I, uh, Amber said luminous. And th- that's the word for her. She just is radiant. You can't film her badly. Um, if you want to get Torrance into black and white movies, um, this one is kind of a mystery suspense genre, which I, uh, that's my, my representation for that one kind of thriller <laughs> film. Um, it, it, but, but the cinematography is stunning. Bergman just, just is gorgeous in every frame. It's amazing. Um, she really carries the film. Um, Although and- my favorite is Dame Maywetty. Oh yeah. She's Anytime Again, she yeah. shows up and she's peeking in that house. And then at the end, when she finally gets in, she's so excited. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's Mrs. Kravitz. God bless Mrs. Kravitz. There's always one. It's, it's you. It's her. <laughs> but you know, you were talking about those like 
character actors that make the movie and you know between Thelma Ritter in Rear Window and her in this like they show up and you just lean forward in your chair because you know you're going to get three minutes just wonderful entertainment um (laughs) Gaslight is amazing uh and I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes because I I did that for a lot of my films and it got an 89 it's actually a a, a, not a remake, but a second version of the film. There was an edition uh, made in England, a version made in England in 1940. That one's got 100% rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, actually a wow. higher rating than the Bergman one. Um, and if, for those of you who love your physical media, it is on the DVD. You get both versions. Uh, if you buy the Bergman version, you get the original. I watched it. I like the Bergman one because I, I, it's my, I'm used to it and it's got that sentimental attraction, but the other one is really good and really different too. It's a little so great. Everyone else likes this movie too. It got seven Academy Award nominations. Um, really did great. It's on the National Film Registry. Weirdly, George Cooker was not nominated uh, for this as Best Director, but he was up against Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder and a bunch of other big names that year. Oh, okay. Good movie. So you can understand that. And of course, um, the, the the term gaslighting that we all know and love and, and could drag politics into if we wanted. But anyway, um, <laughs> came from this movie this is why we talk about gaslighting people is from this movie um and the moments oh my gosh um roz said give them moments any scene with angela lansbury is amazing she's this horrible slutty maid who's just a tart she's great uh and um and then anything bergman does is just fantastic and of course uh her whole the whole sequence towards the end if you haven't seen it it's not really spoilerish but uh she, she turned to her husband and says Scissors. I've lost the scissors. And it's like the best law. And it's just yes. <laughs> her reading of it is so great. Um, so it's it definitely one of those moments you can just pull that out of the movie. And just if you know the movie, you go, oh, and the whole movie comes back to you. So I love that. Well, and I love the atmosphere of the square where they live in London yes. with the Bobby that walks around the block and the fog and but uh, so, such a great movie. I, I just enjoy it tremendously still. And Ingrid oh, Bergman, I'm so glad you put that on there. I think she's I think she's our, our star of the night, maybe after after this. Uh, maybe. maybe. Hitchcock for director and Bergman for star. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Uh, we have mentioned Claude Rains a couple of times, too. So who knows? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so uh, before we get into our honorable mentions and our number ones, we are going to take a quick break. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Okay, so um, now that we're back, we are going to, I have a few honorable mentions. I'm not sure if you guys do. Uh, Amber, did you have any that didn't quite just make the list? Yes, I have three. Is that okay? I have three as well. Just, just let, oh, us, let us hear them. Okay, so um, this first one, it was like torturous to not put this on the list. I went back and forth. Um, for my 1940s section, um, between this one and sorry, wrong number. And I just, I didn't want to be too like romance heavy. So I went with sorry, wrong number, but, um, (laughs) this one is, uh, from 1947, the ghost and Mrs. Muir. Oh, okay. Nice. 
And it's one of my just all time favorites. It's uh, okay. So then the next one um, is sentimentally. If you would like to know what it was like growing up with Dick and Nan Lewis for your parents, watch the 1949 movie Adam's Rib. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> that is. I mean, really, like I, I've gotten really emotional through this whole evening, but I'm going to get choked up again because that movie, like sometimes I just miss my dad and I miss them together. They had a great marriage and a great relationship and it was beautiful to grow up in that environment. And you turn this movie on and that is them a hundred percent. And then my last honorable mention um, is another Hitchcock Another one of my favorites. Um, it is the best of all of the adaptations of this book. And there are many. And I've seen them all. But this one is the best. Um, from 1940, it's Rebecca with Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. Um, you know, Olivier was not built to be a movie actor. Um, that was just not his That's- medium. That's very true. But if anybody could like haul his ass down, it was Alfred Hitchcock and he gets an absolutely spectacular performance out of him. Um, And this, this movie is the one adaptation I feel like that really gets who Rebecca was and why she was so just overpowering and spectacular. And it has a great supporting cast. So those are my three uh, that it broke my heart to not put on the list. <laughs> All right. Uh, mine real quick. Um, uh, I have the, another sci-fi movie that didn't make the cut, uh, war of the worlds, uh, the original one from 1953. Oh um, yes. We just watched that. Yeah. I'm a fan of that whole thing. I, the book, uh, the radio drama, of course, and then the movie. Um, I, and I even like the Spielberg uh, take on it as well. Um, oh, we're going to talk about that. We are. We are talking about that in December. Um, and then uh, buckle up, buddy. Yeah. Uh, well, you could be wrong all day long. That's fine with me. Um, so, and then uh, actually, I, this has been alluded to in one of our previous episodes. Uh, Some like it hot. First time I watched that, I was just just enjoying the whole thing, laughing the whole time, um, and was just it was surprised at how much fun I had watching that movie. Uh, that was a tough one to cut because I really don't have any comedies on my list. So that's like the only genre I didn't really hit. Yeah. So uh, that would have been like on there. comedy is so subjective though. It's really hard to. It's hard. To, it's like a horror film. It's, it's really hard to make good horror. And it's really hard to make good comedies. So, um, and then uh, a, a political one that didn't quite make it. It was hard not to put on there. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I just love that movie. Of course, Jimmy Stewart is fabulous. And uh, I couldn't believe how good it was. And the fact I did, and one thing that stood out to me watching that movie was um, the little boy. The I can't, page, yeah. thank yeah. you, a page. Yeah. And, and my brain thought that, man, if you made that now, uh, that page would have to be 20 years old because nobody would believe that a kid that young uh, would, would have that part. But I'm thinking, Maybe we've gotten stupider as we've gotten anyway, uh, but because I, I totally, I totally bought that that kid knew what he was doing. But anyway, those were the three that at one point were on my list and had to be cut, uh, cut for space. So there you go, uh, Robert. Do you have any that you want to, or do you? Uh, I, I have several, and I guess I'm I'm shallow or something. But I almost <laughs> all of mine are all of mine are comedies. I I love. I don't like really 
very many modern comedies, but these classic comedies, I just love them. So, so my runner-ups that almost almost all made my list, but are all better known than the ones I picked. Um, His Girl Friday. You're right. Uh, okay. Gary Grant, who we all love and have been talking about all night with, with Rosalind Russell. Uh, you know, it is just a, a funny, funny movie. And it's got a little bite toward the end, but but so great. Um, also with Rosalind Russell, uh, The Women, which Amber Amber has mentioned, um, so funny, so great. And then I, I, one quotable movie I have, we didn't have family movies because I'm the only one who likes movies in my family, but um, but is um, is all about Eve. Which oh, is, yes. Oh, yes. I can just start yeah. with the beginning of the movie and just about Eve. And just, you know, two hours later, I'm done. I can do the whole thing. Um, I, I love those kind of sophisticated, witty comedies. It's funny you mentioned uh, Adam's Rib, Amber. That was almost my newest film. It would have been my, my number one spot. I watched it last night. Uh, I love it more now. I have to watch it again and think about your folks. But um, mm-hmm. I never met your dad. But I, I know I know Nan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, what what a great movie! It it, it fell off my list, but um, but it it is again those sophisticated, witty, urbane comedies. I, I wish we would do more of those. Right. Um, I just I was looking at my list. Three of my movies are basically comedies, um, and uh, several have comedic elements. I think good comedy is t- is timeless and. Uh, I love that kind of wit and sophistication. But yeah, that's a fabulous movie. You're right. That, that actually one point was on my list as well. So um, it got cut earlier on, but uh, yeah, that's a great flick. Great flick. All right. Yeah, I Amber. had to cut it because Ann Baxter just exhausts me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was saying Ingrid Bergman is so timeless and Baxter is like got 1950, like stamped on her forehead. <laughs> right. Like, Every movie she's in, you know, all about Eve, Ten Commandments, doesn't matter where you put her, you know, tunics or barrel outfit, doesn't matter. She's just horrible and she always leans forward and she always emotes and she's just, just so dated and awful and everything. Yeah. And I guarantee you, her voice doesn't sound like that in real life. What do you mean, Amber? There is. I can imagine you would say something. That's wonderful. God help us. All right. <laughs> Let's let's hear uh, your number one, Amber. What you got for okay. us? Okay. So once again, it was only chronological. That's fine. Um, but uh, it barely made it. 1959. Um, <laughs> I had to go with Ben Hur. Okay. Um, wow. It's one of my favorites. I really grew up with my uncle watching like the Sword and Sandal epics on like a Sunday afternoon at grandma's house. Um, I have seen them all. He loved them. Um, and so we have seen them all. Um, this one is really just a great revenge story. There's some religion in there, but mostly it's about this guy's burning desire to stick it to his best friend who screwed him over. And it has the greatest action sequence with the chariot race yeah it's pretty fabulous Um, legendary for a reason i mean from the moment it starts until the moment it's over you're just i mean i've seen it a million times and you're just on the edge of your seat like who's gonna win (laughs) um but it's with um charlton heston and stephen boyd and charlton heston plays a jewish prince who is betrayed by his best friend stephen boyd who's a roman who's arranges for him to get sent off into slavery and he spends years in slavery and in these horrible conditions. And the only thing that is keeping him alive is his desire to get back and get this guy. 
and his mother and his sister get thrown in jail. I mean, it's just, he, this friend is just the worst. And you know, Charlton Heston rises above and he finally gets freed and he comes back and you know, just takes it to him. <laughs> and it's spectacular. Like it's just really gripping. Um, you know, there is a Christ allegory through the whole thing. So, you know, if that's your thing, um, if not, it doesn't really overpower the story. So you can take it or leave it. But like I said, I just, the story's really good. And for the chariot scene alone. That's actually one of the few on your list I've seen. So yes, that's a, it's, it's a great movie. It is. Uh, yeah. That chariot scene alone is definitely worth uh, the price of admission, so to speak. So yeah. Okay. So um, my number one is probably kind of obvious, but that's okay. Uh, I don't care. I love this movie. <laughs> oh God. So uh, my number one is from 1941. It's another Orson Welles film. It is his first film yeah. that he directed. I freaking love Citizen Kane. Like Everybody loves Citizen Kane. Yes. There's a like like good reason to love Citizen Kane. Uh, produced, directed, and starring Orson Welles in his feature film debut. Uh, he co-wrote the screenplay with uh, uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz. Uh, supporting players, This I think this is great. Uh, supporting players were from uh, his own uh, Mercury Theater, the same people that worked on the War of the Worlds radio drama, which is fabulous. And I have a copy of it on CD right behind me. Um I love it. Uh, this quasi-biographical movie follows the life and legacy of Charles Foster Kane, a composited character based on media moguls William Randolph Hearst, who was a total jackass, and uh, Joseph Pulitzer, as well as aspects of, of the screenwriter's own experiences. Uh, from the opening death scene, uh, when Kane utters those, fa- you know, those famous words, Rosebud, and drops the water globe, and then the shot through the broken glass, uh, all the way to the end where the sled is sitting in the fire and everything in between uh fact that wells played every version of the adult cane and aged 50 60 years and he was directing all this at the same time while hearst was waging a a war against the movie being made and it's fantastic the cinematography is amazing the score there is nothing wrong with this movie. I'm sorry, Amber. You can be wrong because I love this movie. I saw no, this. In a, I love I will, it too. It was well, my it, dad's it was favorite a, movie. The th- I don't like the part with his wife that's like the opera singer. Like that is annoying as heck. But um, but it's supposed to be. That's like the point. Right. Um, my thing is, I feel like it's so stylized yes. that telling people this is the greatest movie ever made like that's a hard introduction to classic film and i feel like some of the others on our list are it's a little easier you know to kind of watch and kind of get your feet wet before diving into the deep end i feel like it's a movie lover's movie it it absolutely is it's like 2001 a space odyssey i've freaking love that movie i think it's absolute genius but number one it's not for everybody and number two like you can't just throw somebody into that you know like let them watch star wars first (laughs) see no actually i disagree (laughs) because i watched it after watching star wars and i was like this is taking forever we really (laughs) have to watch the space station rotate completely for him to dock the i mean yeah there's uh just because you can kubrick doesn't mean you need to take the entire time for the shot anyway but uh, but, no you're not wrong this is a movie that when i saw it i was like 
I didn't realize they could make movies this cool in 1941. So it, the shots it were different. It challenges you. Yes. For sure. And that's important because as we've talked about, a lot of the movies we talked about were, yes, they were touched by, you know, good directors and lots of famous same names, people over and over again. This movie was not that this was a first time director people that had come from, uh, you know, doing theater and radio dramas and were able to put together a movie that tells a great story about a very interesting and intriguing character and all that from more or less first timers and to do it so right the first time. I mean, you didn't have all those, you know, uh, the supporting characters you had in all these other movies you didn't have all the same actors you'd had before. And to me, that's important. And it, to me, if you're going to make an important film and and change things and, and, and people have gone back to this and, and tried to you know, do what they, what he did. And to me that matters. And yes, it's not for everybody. I was lucky enough to watch this at a young age and it impressed me. And I was like, holy crap. And because of it, uh, it, it changed filmmaking. And it's such a time where they were churning out movies like, you know, actors were doing six or seven movies in a year and, and things like that. And this one is different in my mind, different from so many of those and it will ever hold a spot in it. And AFI named it. It's the number one greatest American movie of all time. I agree because it was so different. It took so many challenges and so many, uh, you know, it pushed the envelope of filmmaking and that is important to me. And that's why it's my number one. I think it's interesting because Wells didn't do a lot of anything except for right. you know wine, wine commercials. But I mean, he, he on radio, the only thing anybody knows about old time radio is War of the Worlds. Right. And the greatest film of all time is Citizen Kane on every list. Not necessarily mine. I admire it more than I enjoy it. But um, and uh, you know, even in theater, which he did with almost the same people, the same right. group. I, you know, I just more had followed him along and Burgess Meredith and a bunch of them. But um, he did he did a production of Macbeth that was just a stunning and is still talked about in the theater and was shocking. And he got, so he's like innovative and shocking in all the different mediums once. And then he did do Third Man and some other, you know, some other right. things. But I just think it's so interesting the way he just kind of like went from us like oh, theater killed it. OK, radio check did did radio. Right. Radio's done now. I, you know, no one can do radio after me. You know, now, now Citizen Kane, okay, I'm checking out. You know, I just, I wish he had done more, but but maybe that just wasn't in him. Maybe it was just this need to try lots of things and just. Right. Yeah, you know, I don't but, know. But, but, but if I, you, well, if you look at the things he did do, he, they were good. I mean, at some point you kind of want to go, oh, I did it. I'm going to butt out and call it even before I do something really crappy. And then people kind yeah. of, because you take that chance of that last thing you make being horrible. And that's what people remember you for. He did so many things right. And then, and then unfortunately, like I said, my generation remembers him mostly from selling wine and which is unfortunate because he did so much, such quality work. And the Muppet movie. Don't forget. I was going to say the Muppet movie. He was, he was Lord Lou. Yes, that's true. Contracts and made yes. He was on screen star. for 30 I mean, seconds. Yes. I know. He did the Hobbit. I mean, come on. We I know. Have, have the Muppets being big stars. If it wasn't for Lord. Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I will accept my being wrong. I just wrong, feel so. like that Citizen yeah, Kane, t- you have to have prior knowledge yeah, to really get it and really appreciate it. Like, I feel like you need, and maybe it's because I watched it with my dad and my dad thought it was the greatest movie ever. And so he was saying like, watch this, 
look at this and telling me the backstory and stuff like that. So I feel like that made the experience better Hmm. and made me appreciate it more. I feel like you can't just hand somebody that movie and say, go watch this because it's genius. Like, well, I don't know. I, I disagree because like that's how it came to me. Hand. It was literally like, you're going to watch this. And I was like, okay. And then it was done. I was like, <laughs> holy shit, really? I mean, it, so um, it depends on the person. You're not wrong. Yeah. It does depend on the person. And because I, I was like I said, Torrance wouldn't, I'd have to pay her to sit and watch this whole movie. So, <laughs> and that's not going to happen because, you know, but yes, it's not for everybody and you're not wrong, but I still think, um, for what it did for filmmaking, it's <laughs> for what it did for filmmaking. That's why it's my number one. Oh, for sure. Robert, what's your last one? All righty. Well, to kind of kind of wrap up everything here, um, <laughs> almost almost went with Adam's rib. Uh, did not. Um, and talked about all about Eve. Loved that. I went with the with the other Mankiewicz, not Herman, who wrote Citizen Kane and other films. I went with Joseph Mankiewicz, The Letter to Three Wives. Okay. Also by Joseph Mankiewicz, also directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. He won the Oscar for screenplay and for directing that movie. The next year, he won for screenplay and direction for All About Eve. And that's something no one has ever done since, uh, is win both both awards back-to-back like that. Mankiewicz and his brother were both just writing geniuses. Mankiewicz started in the 30s. He wrote for Clark Gable, who we've talked about in Manhattan Melodrama. He did Woman of the Year, which was another uh, Catherine Hepburn uh Spencer Tracy movie. He did the, the, the horrible Cleopatra in the 1960s, uh, <laughs> Guys and Dolls. You know, I mean, he was everywhere. Uh, his, his nephew, Ben, uh, Herman's son, is still on TCM now. I mean, it's definitely, if you're a Mankiewicz, you've got a good career in, in film. But <laughs> Lenny's Three Wives, not as well known, doesn't have a lot of the same big stars. Um, the, the best known stars really is Kirk Douglas, who's a supporting character in this. It was one of his earliest films. Uh, the main name stars, the three wives that got the letter, were Anne Southern, Linda Darnell, and Jean Crane. Um, Southern was great. She's she's always dependable, never quite broke through to the top tier. Right. Darnell and Crane both had uh, mental health issues and all kinds of other kinds of problems, but are both really effective in this movie. Um, the wonderful Thelma Ritter is in this movie, uh, <laughs> in a great, great, sassy supporting cast role. Um, and Mrs. Van Hopper's in it, too, from... Rebecca. Yes. Yeah. I don't um, know that actress's name, but yeah, I, I know. was like, you, oh my God, she did something else. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great. So the, the premise of the, the, the movie, and it actually has been taken off uh, by The Simpsons. They did an episode uh, called A Letter to Three Mo's. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Is that the, the, these three women who are all ostensibly friends, but probably aren't in this sort of posh upper crust community, um, receive a letter from another one of their dear, dear friends. Uh, as they're all about to go off on a charity event for the day. And the letter, they open the letter and it, it says the friend can't join them that day because she has run off with one of their husbands. <laughs> and so the rest of the movie is, is three segments where each wife wonders, could it be her husband who ran off with their dear friend, Carrie? But um, really funny, sophisticated, and uh, just just so many great lines. Thelma Ritter slays. She's a maid because she's always like the maid or the the you know somebody like that. And her best line in the movie, and she does it in the way that only she can. But um, uh, Anne Southern is trying to give a dinner party to impress her bosses, and so she wants Thelma, who is their maid, to wear a maid's uniform—the whole black thing with the white and the lace and the little hat and all that. And she she is saying to Thelma, "Well, you know, why aren't you wearing the cap?" And Thelma says, if I wear the cap, I look like a lamb chop. <laughs> uh, 
But when Thelma Ritter says it, you are on the ground, you have to hit pause because you are laughing so hard that you can't continue with the movie. But uh, Kirk Douglas is great. But the side thing is witty and funny and just zinger, 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 very much like All About Eve. It uh, also kind of looks at the marriages. Now, originally it was based on a story called A Letter to Five Wives, and they thought that wasn't very manageable for a film. So then, then they they started writing the screenplay was going to be a letter to four wives, and they actually had the fourth wife, and it was our dear dear friend, Anne Baxter. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they decided if they're going to cut somebody, let's cut Anne Baxter, which I think we all can agree on was a good choice. <laughs> so she, is, she is the missing fourth wife, um, but the three wives are great. But the marriages are looked at, and I said so. so Southern and Kirk Douglas are married, and she is the breadwinner. He's just a, low, a lowly school teacher, and she writes for radio and is, is very, you know, posh and all this. So they had the kind of battle of the sexes, 50s, well, you can't wear the pants, and why do you make more money? And, you know, and then uh, Linda Darnell is this gold digger who it goes after the richest man in town, and she's a hussy, and they actually really <laughs> love each other. But um, as he says to her, I, I, I would have loved you, but all you ever showed me was your price tag, you know. Um, so, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, but, but it's kind of really sweet But because they actually do love each other. And then Jean Crane and her husband um, both served in the military right after the war. They were they were the perfect little couple in high school. They both served in the war. They come back to town. Well, of course, they have to get married, you know, and they find they really have nothing in common. So it's it's, it's among all this funny, sophisticated banter and, and cocktail parties and Thelma Ritter zingers, you get to look at these three different relationships. And in each one of them, you can see how maybe the husband is going to run off with one of the wives, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or with, with the, the other lady, because uh, they're not great marriages necessarily, but they all work it out. I, I won't tell you how it ends and, and who actually runs off with the, the hussy. But, um, and then Celeste Holm is not seen on screen. She's in All About Eve, of course, as uh, Margot's best friend, but she is the voice and her narration is also um, great. Uh, she, she uh, in the opening, they're showing the streets of the town. It's everything's manicured and perfect. And she's talking about, well, this is where the country club people live when they're not at the country club. Um, and it just goes <laughs> on from there. Um, and uh, so she, she's great, even though you never see her, although they talk about her a great deal. So um, we've got Ann Baxter. We've got Thelma Ritter. We've got Mankiewicz. That kind of kind of wraps up, wraps up the, the night and wrap, wraps up my, my number one choice. 1949. That's as far as I go. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry. I had the fifties covered apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I'm, I am intrigued with that one. I even wrote that one down. So I'm going to have to definitely check that one out. That sounds fun. So, well, uh, when I came up with this and I knew it was perfect for you too, I uh, was had high hopes and they were met. So as always, Robert and Amber, thank you so much for coming by and, and uh, shedding light where light needed to be shed. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, and listeners out there, as always, uh, it means so much that you make us a part of your day. Uh, and do hit us up on social media. Let us know what your top seven golden age of cinema titles are. Uh, we would love to hear from you. The holidays are upon us, of course. It is November, and uh, the next two months are a blur for most and uh, tough on some. So make sure you are looking after your family, your friends, and your neighbors, and uh, reaching out to anybody that may need help at this time, uh, because we are all in this together. So let's look out for one another. Uh, Stop back by next week. We are celebrating Terry Gilliam's birthday and discussing 
Time Bandits. I'm excited about that one very much so. Do yourself a favor, watch more movies, and remember, physical media is better than streaming. The Docking Bay 77 podcast is produced and edited by Dayton Johnson, recorded with Rode Pod Mics, the Zoom Pod Track P4, and edited on Audacity. Opening music provided by Eric Jason Brock. You can find him on YouTube and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening. But he created you, evil one. What did you say? Well, he created you, so he can't be totally... (laughs) Never talk to me like that again. No one created me.